everyone. Welcome to Roost Podcast. My name is Sean Pitcher. I will be your host today. We have on Stephanie Hale. She is a mental skills coordinator for the Seattle Mariners. Stephanie and I both know each other from our time working at IMG Academy together. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. And it'll be good to connect again. Absolutely. Really excited for this episode um, just because myself working with mental conditioning coaches for three years when I was IMG Academy, um, I can't express enough how important it is to have that person on your staff, not only to help the athletes, but also to help the staff that you work with um, and having that interdisciplinary approach. But before we get into that, first thing I want to ask you is who is Stephanie Hale? Yeah, no, I, I was thinking about this question. I I kind of have a love-hate relationship with it, right? Because at times it's like, it's the thing that is like the essence of somebody. And there's so many different concepts and just like layers to this, but it's also the thing that never feels like you have enough time to dive into. But, um, you know, when I, when I really took some time to think about who is Steph, and I probably should admittedly think about this more often. <laughs> to me, it came down to this just idea of like, well, I'm a lot of things, right? I'm like everything. And I'm a very specific person. I'm a wife. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a coach. I'm a colleague I'm a friend I'm all these things but really you know I think I'm just somebody who really values things like connection um, values efficiency values loyalty and values this whole idea of getting better and I think that like that is the thing that initially led me into sport and I say this because that's our mutual connection is right being at IMG Academy boarding school for these athletes that come in and it's an incredible environment but for me, it's like, when I thought about it, I'm this person who has all these characteristics and qualities and whatnot, but sport is really the environment and the space that I've been able to demonstrate those things, challenge those qualities and ideas. And um, that being said, to go into more, I guess, the logistics, grew up in Southern California, um, grew up there pretty much my whole life and dove into sports at a really young age ended up actually playing baseball was the first sport I ever played. And it was purely because my kindergarten best friend that I'm pretty sure met on day one and was like, do you want to be best friends? Yep. Great. <laughs> he ended up playing baseball that year and he convinced me to go play with him. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't know any different. I was like, sure, it's a game. Yeah, let's go play. And I remember, I do remember telling my dad I wanted to play baseball and he was like, baseball, you sure? And I was like, yep, Tyler's playing. I want to go play. He was like, all right, let's go sign you up. Um, so that was the first sport I ever played. When I was about eight years old, I started to get into soccer. Um, and that's actually the sport I ended up playing the longest through college and whatnot. The reason I got into soccer is maybe a little more comical and also maybe not the best portrayal of me, but I started playing soccer because <laughs> my twin sister played soccer. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to let her be better at something than I am. So I better go play this sport too. <laughs> um, so I ended up playing soccer and did a little bit of dabbling in like cross country track in middle school and early high school, but I played softball through high school and I played soccer beyond high school into college my four years undergrad so um bounced around a lot of different places but that's really the first like going through sport especially in high school when things started to get a little bit more competitive that's when I started to get interested in this whole like mindset mental performance thing because like a lot of people and probably like most other mental performance coaches I recognized that I struggled with it and had no idea how to get better at it and so that's kind of how I stumbled onto it and I, and I would to go off of that point right there. I was the same thing for nutrition, right? Yeah. When I was growing up, I was, I was a really Husky kid. You know, I always tell this story when I went to Walmart, I was in the Husky jeans section. Like I'm not, <laughs> not going to shame myself for it. It was what it was. Yeah. Uh, 
but yeah, it was one of those moments where you were like, I have to figure out how can I improve this specific attribute or how can I improve this specific part of my life? Because it's one of those things that's never going to go away, right? You're always yeah. going to be thinking, you're always going to have to use your mind every single day. Nutrition, you have to eat, sleep and hydrate every single day. So it was one of those kind of same things that you're kind of saying there is, I was like, I have to start investing in this now, because if I don't, it's going to be a long-term struggle kind of going forward. And, and another yeah. funny thing off of what you said was, uh, my, I mean, you know, Laura, that's my fiance. She was also on the podcast. Um, she also had a twin sister and she also did played softball with her too. So I was like, that's a funny little connection that I don't know if yeah. you know. No, I didn't know that, but I love that. That twin, man, there's just something inherent, like about those twins and competitiveness, even when you're like aware of it, it like, it still shows up, but mm -hmm. we roll with it. Absolutely. Um, in your own words, could you kind of explain to the audience what is what is mental conditioning or mental performance? Yeah, um, to put it simply, I think mental performance is just understanding the influence that mentality or mindset can have in what you do or don't do, um, specifically in the context that I train it, work with it, try to develop it, happens to be in the context of sport, right? And so I think that there's, for me, it's specific to baseball now. Um, I've had experience working with other groups, but it's just understanding kind of what you said that you're never, there's never anything that you do that's going to operate independently of a mindset that you bring to it. And so when we think about mental performance, it's interesting because there are kind of these layers to it. And I think it operates on more or less of a spectrum. And within that spectrum, there's these layers of like, we do have mental health. And I think mental health sometimes can also be like, this spectrum, right? But there's this like clinical piece where we have to make sure that clinically individuals get the support that they need. And there is that kind of balance of like, no, we do have some clinical issues that we're going to treat. And then there's some progressions to that of like, okay, we get to a more balanced piece, which is then the next layer where we get into like well-being, um, maybe some of like the life skills and perspective piece. And then we get to mental performance, which I think we can think about more as like just optimal performance, right? But if we don't have the foundation of quality, stable mental health. We don't have a good balance from that of like well-being and habits to support that. It's going to be really hard to access that optimal uh, performance piece and maintain it, right? So it's it's this layered approach and it requires all of these things. But I would say for mental performance and specifically what I do, I work with that top piece, you know? And there is some overlap where I think as mental conditioning coaches, mental skills coaches, mental performance coaches, whatever the titles are that we use, there's some overlap in there between some of our licensed professionals, like our psychologists that tend to specify in more of the mental health side of things, and that's their expertise, that there's some overlap then of where we can both help support from the well-being standpoint and the life skill standpoint. But then there's that piece of like, trained pro uh, professionals in mental performance work with that optimal performance and the skill sets and strategies it takes wow. to be able to achieve that, maintain it over time. So, um, so would yeah, you I would say, say, would you say kind of like sports psychology almost is, is a lot of the clinical end so they can deal with, let's say possibly prescribing medications or clinical diagnoses and then more yeah. for conditioning mental performance is more sports application is that kind of what i'm getting from there yeah absolutely so yeah i think the way you said it there the sports psychology so psychiatry is probably going to be more of the like prescribing medications and whatnot but psychologists are going to be able to diagnose and treat clinical issues 
But I think that they're from sports psychologists, the thing that separates them from just uh, like other psychologists or professionals in the field is that they do tend to have that ability to also train mental performance. But if we're mental performance coaches like myself, not a psychologist, right? I don't have that doctor degree and that licensure, but yes, our, our training and our expertise comes with the on-field application, the in-sport context, specifically training those skills and strategies. We can provide some support on the well-being and life skills side of it, but for the most part, there's going to be some crossover and a clear point where it's, hey, no, we're going to hand this over to a mental health professional who has better training and competencies to handle this in the right way. Gotcha. So that's, that's awesome. So it gives you a really good division line. It's like, all right, if you have this specifically going on, you can go see Steph. If it's something a little bit higher than me, you're going to see either an outside sports psychologist, or maybe you have one specifically within your team or your organization, you can see them. And then that way you're both kind of tag team that at the same time. So they're coming back down to your level, like in the actual in play in time, have to have these skills in sport, you're there. But if it's something outside of there, it needs to be done more clinical, then obviously you have that option to go externally. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So let's kind of work into maybe like an example, like how how is mental skills applied in the field, whether it's practice, it could be, I don't know, the weight room during a game, you know, maybe give us some examples on how you either teach these behaviors or these skills. And then how is that transferring over to the athlete's game on field? Yeah. It's a great question because I think there do tend to be a lot of misconceptions about this or how do we get this thing trained to be able to apply on field. And so to give you some examples, at least here with the Mariners, we're huge on trying to get our players to understand their experience and their feel and then be able to use their skills and strategies to regulate or manipulate that to get themselves into a more productive space or state. So one way that we use that, um, for example, so we're talking baseball specifically, right? And so a big thing for our players is we want to make sure that they can get themselves pitch to pitch to be able to be in control of their thoughts and their body, right? And so we uh, we like to challenge them a little bit with this idea of how do we get them to feel what it's like to not be in control, but then regulate themselves to get to a space where they then regain control or can regulate that response. So we use cold tubs a lot here, which has been a pretty awesome experience and it's something that's really caught on over the last several years. But the main reason that we've utilized this is because our players will have them come out and we usually do this at the start of the day. They're in for one minute. So it's enough that it's not going to actually like cause their body to have the shutdown response, but it's actually going to help them be more alert to start the day. They're going to feel better, but they're going to get that initial response of they come, they get in the cold tub for one minute. And as soon as you get in the cold tub, right, you get that automatic, like crap, I need to get out. Like, I don't want to be here. You're immediately uncomfortable. Your body tenses up, your breath starts to get more rapid, your heart's racing. And so we, we talk to them about this in the sense of like, well, what happens when you're in the box and it's a two strike count or you're on the mound and it's three Oh, and all you can think about is walking this guy. Like, what do you think is happening to your body and mind in these situations? And we start to draw those parallels about what happens, but then give them the tools. Well, how do we regulate this? And for us, one of the most efficient ways you can start to get control of that response of your thoughts and your body is to utilize your breathing, right? And so we teach them, but we don't just teach them like, okay, use your breath or just slow it. Like we actually want them to understand what it feels like to take a diaphragmatic breath, to be efficient in their breath. So that within two, three, four breaths, they're able to feel that difference between like, oh shit, it's cold. I need to get out to, okay, it's cold, but I can do this. 
you know, and there's like this immediate shift. And it's that thing that once they felt it and experienced it, it's the thing that they now have more awareness of. It's not just this conceptual concept we've talked about. And so it was super interesting in spring training because we utilize this a lot and we never forced our players to do it. We just kind of had it out there as an option. And at the start of spring training, we maybe had three or four guys out there. And by the end of spring training, we had 25 guys out there just starting their day doing this. And it was cool to see the feedback that they would come back with morning after morning. Steph, I could totally feel this happen in the box, or I could feel this point after this at bat where I started to lose control, but I knew what to do. And it's this like experience for them where once they're, they're like conscious of it. Right. And so it's that thing that they, because they know that they experienced it and they made those parallels ahead of time, they knew what to be aware of and they knew what to do once they found themselves in these situations out of control and what it felt like to shift back into that control. So basically, and pretty much they're almost then going through those multiple spectrums of of how they feel. And then I, I could see that, right? Like you're in, uncomfortable here. Well, I'm going to be uncomfortable here. And wherever they're going to be uncomfortable throughout the day, that's helping to kind of relate over to that moment or specific time of the day. And it's almost, and then it becomes almost like that self-talk in your head, right? It's, it's, I've been in this uncomfortable moment or I've been in a worse moment. Like this is really not that bad. Or I've, I've been, you know, two strikes with, with one more to go multiple times. This isn't anything different. And I'm assuming yeah. it's really having to retrain the thought process and also how they, they think about those moments as well. Yeah, 100%. I think even like to the point of getting guys to realize that like just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean that there isn't a way to get through it or to figure it out or still perform really, right? Like a lot of times we associate like, I feel uncomfortable, I feel bad. That means things are going to go poorly and it starts this spiral it starts to provide some awareness, even just some curiosity to the fact that I cannot feel great or be in an unideal situation or environment. And I still can have the skills and strategies to get myself through this and go execute what I need to do. Like, and that's, that's a pretty huge thing for guys, right? Like and how I, many times go ahead. And, and I see that frequently among the athletes. Mm -hmm. it's just they get into even just a small bit of uncomfortability. And then all of a sudden it's like, ah, I got to stop. Can't do it. I'm done. Or even if it's just like not, not even injured, let's say you just like train, like you worked out one day and the next day you're a little bit sore. It's like, Oh, I can't lift anymore because now the next practice, like I feel terrible. I can't do it. It's like, well, not necessarily. It doesn't mean you mm -hmm. can't, do it. it just means you're going to be a little bit uncomfortable. You just have to put yourself in a position to hopefully use the tools around you to recover better. But you're going to be able yeah. to do it. It's not, you're not in an actual stage where you can't do it. 100%. And I love the piece you just said there about the, like, just means you might have to do something different with your recovery or be more intentional in prioritizing your recovery today. And I think a lot of times when we think about optimal performance, mental performance, like my job as a mental skills coach is just to get guys to understand themselves better mm -hmm. so that they can recognize when some of those thought patterns are showing up and maybe the behaviors that, operate off of those thought patterns but then also then just give them the skills and strategies so that they start to learn like oh wait i can do this here to help do to help adjust this or i can use this skill and regulate in this way like if i could just get guys to be better at hey first thing in the morning wake up and check in with like where's my mind and body at and how is that going to influence the way i go through the rest of my day okay great that's going to influence the way that you prepare and the way you go through your practice and training for that day and the way you go through your practice and training is then going to influence how much you trust your mind and body to be able to go execute the things you trained it to do. And if you can trust those things, you're going to find that on the field, in the moment, 
you're going to be able to maintain more confidence. And, and so it's like this layered effect, right? But a lot of it starts with just, do you even have awareness of where you're at? Or have you started to develop the awareness to check in with where am I at? What do I need to do in order to execute what has to get done today? Yeah, I mean, all those things are going to affect your whole day. Not not like the next hour. I mean, I'll tell my athletes a lot of time, even it's what you do the night before is going to affect how you're even going to feel going in the morning, your appetite, mm -hmm. your mood, whether you want to actually do something or not, your thought process, right? I'm, I mean, I'm sure you speak about sleep probably pretty frequently, but sleep for me and and, and telling these assets to get more sleep is, is a huge component that I have found just doing enough assessments on guys one-on-one -on -one just has a direct correlation to almost determining a lot of times how your entire day is going to be decided. Cause if your sleep is poor or you sleep too long into the morning, I mean, pretty much guys or girls, like their whole routine is just thrown off. And then yeah. sometimes they don't always have the ability to know how to, to recover after that routine or schedule has been even shifted a little bit. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I think we find that a lot in baseball, especially because they have such a weird training day, right? Like a lot of times their day doesn't even start until 11 o'clock noon. Like they'll show up at the stadium, then they'll get to the clubhouse. They've still got an hour or so, maybe some guys hour, hour and a half until anything actually starts on field. They go, they train all day. They have a couple hours and maybe like hour and a half, two hours between the game. Game starts at six. They play till 10. They eat, they go home, and they're wired from the game. So some of these guys aren't going to bed till one or two in the morning, sleeping again until 10 or 11 in the morning the next day. And it's like, you know, they're aware of the fact that they're like, they're tired. And it's like, how do we help you regulate that sleep cycle when it's pretty abnormal as is? And so we've helped or we've tried to help educate guys on what they can do to help manage that, just knowing that they have a weird schedule, but also trying to educate them on the discipline that they have to have because you're going to be wired, but here's all the things that you can do to try to like downregulate faster post game. So you can get yourself into more of that parasympathetic state and sleep through the night more often. But you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's a tough conversation, but it's important. Like you said, so many, so many sports just end so late and, and guys, mm -hmm. just don't, especially like that's where the education comes from. Like the guys just can't put two and two together. Like, oh, I just can't sleep or I can't stay asleep. And they don't understand that one, the nervous system is, is involved or two, you know, what does your sleep hygiene look like? What what does your routine look like before you're going to bed? Are you, are you implementing some of these things to make your environment calmer? So mm -hmm. that way physically and mentally, you're in a better state to be able to actually fall asleep instead of using, I don't want to say it's an excuse, but some guys will hold on to those things, right? Oh, I had a late game. I just, I can't go to bed. It is what it is. Well, it's, yep. like, it's, it's not, it is what it is. There is something you can actually do about it, but are you willing to make the choice consistently to be able to do that. So you're in a better space going in from day to day to day. Yeah, 100%. And I think the thing that we've tried to lean on a little bit more is just challenging guys like, Hey, for the next, you know, seven days, the next series, let's challenge you to be in bed every day by this time. And here's the things that might help you be able to do that more consistently. And let's just compare contrast. Cause I think the thing we've found is like, sometimes guys will lean on that as their, I mean, yeah, it's like excuse, but it like it kind of is an excuse because they don't want to try it. But the other piece of it is just like they might not even know what they're giving up in terms of how much better they could be feeling. And yeah. so that's the big piece is we're trying to get them to experience like, OK, just give me seven days. If you can give me seven days, let's compare contrast how you do feel versus how you felt prior to prioritizing the sleep. If it's not different, I'm not going to force you to do it because at the end of the day, it's like it's your choice. But a lot of times, if we can actually get guys to commit to those seven days, they're like, 
actually felt way more focused or it was way easier for me to get up in the morning or whatever. They start to understand like, oh, here's the cost of actually not prioritizing the sleep versus the reward I get when I do. So if we can get them to experience that and start to build that awareness themselves, and we just kind of give them the tools and strategies that like, hey, post game, here's some things you can try in terms of like warm showers, limiting light exposure, give you some breathing exercises or mindfulness and try to just give them basically four or five different ways they can downregulate. And it's like, use whatever one of these you want, try it post game for seven days, see what happens. Yeah. And it's just making them then verbalize that. Hey, mm. how did you feel? Yeah. Oh, I felt a lot better. Okay, great. How did you feel before? Well, I used to feel terrible when I did this way. Do you want to go back to that? No, I don't want to go back to it. So then, you know, you're, you know, it's almost like sometimes when I used to ask uh, athletes questions too, you're trying to catch them. Yeah. To show that they're saying it to themselves, to show them that they're, they're saying that they feel better. And then it yeah. becomes, well, I didn't say you felt better. You're the one that said you felt better. So, yeah. and I, I've done that. I mean, even here where I'm at now, I've done that multiple times. You know, I had an athlete just come in and, and told me, oh, I'm starting to feel tired and exhausted again. I go, well, what are you doing that you were doing last year? Oh, I'm not eating. I'm not doing this. So what do you think you need to fix? Well, I need to start probably eating this meal and that meal that I'm missing. Well, you have all the answers. You just need to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so then yeah. I just them to start answering the questions themselves. I'm like, I'm not telling you anything different than we haven't already done. And you know the positive effect from it. Yeah utilize a little motivational interviewing techniques and get them to <laughs> answer their own questions. You got to have all the tools in the toolbox. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You do. Yeah. Could you kind of describe, you know, amongst multiple different sports is mental performance coaching different from baseball to football to track? Like how does, how do, how do you change those tactics from sport to sport? Is there just like a baseline skills and things you teach to all sports, but then depending on the sport, there's things that you would switch up. Yeah, it's a great question because it's something I've thought about a lot, especially having more of my personal experience coming from soccer and then thinking about the, the skills and strategies you'd apply in soccer versus baseball, which is where I spend most of my time now. But even when I was at IMG, I had some experience working with girls lacrosse, with tennis, with track in a limited fashion. And I, I might get pushback from this on other mental performance coaches, but I think my thought process is, is like, there's only so many skills that we all teach. Like we all teach breathing. We teach visualization. We teach reflection. We teach, uh, you know, awareness of self-talk. We teach, there's probably like six or seven different tools that we all utilize. And I would say that it's probably not that much more than I'll give it eight, right? Like eight tools. But I think for me, and this probably comes down to each individual practitioner and what their model of performance is or how they actually work through some of the barriers and get to that optimal performance phase. But to me, a lot of it is always going to come down to how well do athletes regulate their stress response and how good are they at being able to direct or shift their focus appropriately for whatever the task is. Right. And so the task is always going to change sport to sport, sometimes even position to position. But to me, it's like, okay, all those skills and strategies that we use is going to help them do that better, regulate their stress response and direct and shift their focus. And some of that is like immediate in-game. Some of that is like, okay, how do we build routine so that you prepare for those in-game moments better? Some of it is like, okay, when you're off the field, how are you managing your nervous system response or taking care of it so that when you get to the field and you start to go through your preparation, it's easier to manage. Um, that being said, I think the timing and like how you apply the skills and strategies differs a lot sport to sport, right? So for baseball, there's 
there's a ton of time or stoppages in the game, like pitch to pitch. You're always going to have, I guess now with the pitch clocks, we got 15 seconds more <laughs> or less, but um, you know, you have an allotted amount of time between pitches to kind of get yourself ready. You kind of know that, okay, I have to manage this moment to get ready for the next one. This play is over, wait for the next pitch to get ready for the next one. Where in soccer, like it's a lot more dynamic in the sense that something is always happening. So there's not necessarily that natural stoppage where you can just kind of apply those skill sets in a very formulaic way, which makes it sound like it's not super dynamic in baseball. It still is, but the way that the game is laid out isn't as prescribed in that way. Everyone's um, everyone's sports play and timing is going to be a little bit different. So you almost have to curtail how you're going to interject in that specific game, I'm assuming based on the sport, because you might not be able, like you said, like if, if soccer's out there for, let's say one guy's out there for a full 45 minutes, something happened 10 minutes in. I mean, you could be like a coach and yell something across the field. Maybe it's like a certain word that gets them to re refocus compared to baseball. If they're going to be sitting, you know, standing in there with you because they're not going to go back out until X amount of minutes, then yeah, you have a lot more time. So it's almost like you have to pick and choose the skills in those moments that, are going to best apply based on the specified sport that you're going to work with. Is what, that what it sounds like almost? Yeah, exactly. And like, just to give a more tangible example, like we talked about the breathing earlier, right? Like between pitches, I can step out of the box or I can step off the mound. Again, given the pitch clock, I guess that's kind of a different rule that's just shown up this year, but you have the ability to between pitches. Okay. Getting control of my breath. What am I going to do for this pitch? And then go do it. Right. Whereas in something like soccer, it's like, if I'm going to utilize the breath when there's a stoppage, right? If there's a free kick, goal kick, corner kick, whatever it might be throw in like, okay, that's kind of a natural stop more or less where I can start to check in with that a little bit more, but otherwise I'm going to have to be a lot more intentional with like, as I'm playing, if the ball's on the opposite side of the field or something like, okay, just smooth out your exhales or try to get into my nose, nose to mouth or something like that. Right. Where it's going to be like the things that we teach or the school uh, skills that we apply like you're saying, they're just going to have to be more fluid in terms of like how we think about checking in with those things, how, what is going to be like that cue or indicator for me and how am I going to be aware of it? Whereas in baseball, you kind of have that natural stoppage where you know that like in between innings, in between pitches, in between at bats, whatever it might be, you know, you're going to get that. And that's guaranteed not so much in these other sports. So you have to build those in for yourself. And I think another good point you mentioned was the practitioner. Everyone can know, let's say those, those baseline eight skills, that you mentioned, mm. but it really comes down to the person who's providing those skills to the athlete because yeah. some people can do a terrific job at it because they do a great job of communicating. They have lots of good, good examples. They have things that are relatable to the athletes or sport that they're working with and others may be in that situation and have, have no clue. So I would say it also comes down to, again, practicing and being involved in those situations and, and figuring out you personally, what are, what are my top things that I can do to get information across to the athlete that they can understand it and then actually apply it? Cause yeah. all of us are really smart and know a lot of information and have all these degrees and credentials. But if you can't get the athlete to figure out this complex information and make it simple and then them apply it out into the field, then it's really not going to mean too much to them. I think that's such a valuable point to make. And We've discussed this a lot, at least within our organization and the whole, to me, what you just described is the art of coaching. And it doesn't really matter what you're coaching, but at some point, I think the best practitioners, coaches, whatever, 
can do a really good job of having an idea about what's important and why, right? Because you want to be able to provide that information. But they know how to connect with those that they're working with, whether it's other coaches or players, to then ask questions or deliver information in a way that gets at like what is important to the individual you're working with. Because if I can understand what's important to them and I know what's important and might be able to help support that, that's where the art of coaching gets in because that's the only place you really get buy-in. They don't care if they don't think it applies to them or if it's this thing that like, you know, I can think back to my early mental skills coaching days and you can talk over and over again about like, there's probably going to be a point in the game when you experience this, this, and this. And if a player doesn't connect with it, which rarely telling them that they're going to experience it is not the way to connect with people. I had to learn that through struggling through it for a year or two, you know, they like, they get to this point where they're like, "Eh, that's not relevant to me. And so I think a lot of times it's asking questions where they can put the pieces together of like, actually, this does happen for me, or you ask them, how does this show up for you? And then they give you the responses and they start to understand like where their experience and this benefit of what we're trying to teach them align. And so they at least have the opportunity and autonomy to make the choice of, I'm going to do this because I know that it's helping me, or I know that this thing could help me, but I'm not, I'm not ready to do it yet. And that's like a very real process that a lot of people have to go through And there's something that is eventually going to push them over the edge to get to that point where they're like, actually, no, I need to commit to this. And then they're going to actually stick with it probably a lot better and a lot longer than us just trying like, tell them, tell them, tell them, tell them. And everybody changes at a different pace. You know, that's why sometimes it gets frustrating when you're working with some staff or some coaches or just, you know, high level environments that, you know, they want that specific athlete to change right away. And a lot of times, hey, if this is what they've been doing for the last 20 years, 25 years, I can't change this in a week or a month. You're going to mm-hmm. give me time. And they they have to see it as valuable enough to want to make the change to do something different. I can't make yeah. them feel that it's important to them. It's not going to yeah. work. <laughs> I can't force yeah. it to them because someone from higher up is saying their batting average is terrible and they look awful. And if we don't do something soon, like they're going to get fired. Well, I can, I can do this, this, and this, and hopefully they make the decision to change that, but I can't ultimately go out there and do it for them. A thousand percent. And I think as you were talking right there, the two things that stood out to me is like, that's where it's our job as coaches to really get to know the individuals and be able to connect with different types of individuals. Right. But really understand like, what are, what are their values? Like, this is where the values conversation comes in, in terms of like, do we understand what's important to them? And if we understand what's important to them, that's at least the thing that helps us get our foot in the door. But the other thing is, can we provide them the evidence to show why this matters? And I think sometimes this is really underutilized because it's that thing that I've learned, at least being in baseball, right? There's so many numbers that we can attach things to, but there's a lot of ways that we can show evidence of, hey, those that have made it to the big leagues have trends of doing X, Y, and Z. What does it take for you to be able to do X, Y, Z? And do you even want this? most guys in professional baseball want to get to the big leagues, right? So we kind of have that alignment. A lot of times the discrepancy comes in. Do we agree on how, like, what's the best process for you to get there? But when we have the evidence to say, this is why we're suggesting this process, we can at least provide that to the player. And they're going to either be like, okay, yeah, I'm on board with this, or I'm on board, but I have questions about X, Y, Z, which is also valid. Or we get some players where they're just like, I don't think that's true. And it's like, Okay, well, here's the evidence for it. If you don't believe it's true, that's fine. I would say that's a very small pocket of players, but it is that thing where it's like, if I can show you evidence 
I'm at least giving you the information to either ask questions, believe it more inherently, or you know you're making the decision against all the evidence I'm showing you. A, a good transition to there is then how do you how do you then work with an interdisciplinary staff to get that athlete to that point, right? Because I'm sure I've seen obviously a big movement with lots of different professionals getting added, whether it's sports science, um, sports dietitians, you have your coaches, your strength conditioning coaches. Um, can you speak on how having having that team is helping to hopefully push those athletes in that direction that they want to get to? Yeah, I think it's a huge benefit because every individual is multifaceted, right? And all of these things have this connected dynamic relationship that play off one of an one another, right? Even just thinking about the sleep, like there's aspects of nutrition that are going to impact that. There's in, uh, aspects of alert, like how you alert your nervous system or how you start to downregulate your nervous system that are going to impact that. There's elements of how you're getting your body to recover. Like it all plays a role. And so I would say I'm super biased because this is my experience, but I would say one of the hugest difference makers to me at the Mariners is that we all have this overarching philosophy of like, what are we all trying to get our players to do in order to make them competitive at the big league level? And we have this like key core concept. And I think if we all broke it down, every single department could be like, I understand what my job is to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And so that is huge because we all understand what direction we're working in. And if we can't provide some type of support or evidence for why what we're doing is going to help our athletes do this better, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. So it eliminates a lot of bullshit right out the gate. Um, but I also think it opens the door for collaboration a lot more because we all understand that we're working in this direction. It's like, Hey, how does what I do influence the way that you're trying to get this player to do X, Y, Z. Right. And so like, if we work with our dietitians, and we're talking to them about like, it takes a mindset and a lot of ways to commit to some of the habits that they need in order to execute the things that would be most beneficial for them from a dietary standpoint. We do the same thing with our strength and conditioning coaches in the weight room. Like how do we get them to take that mindset or understand the ways that they can leverage their mind and their thought process to go get the most out of their training, their physical training. And I think something that's also been super interesting to me is thinking about being truly integrated. And this has been something that's kind of unique to my experience. And I don't think it's like a, I don't say this to say that one's better or worse, but I think just the models and the environment itself, like being in professional baseball, our job 100% is to make sure that we get our players to be as competitive as possible. We're trying to develop big leaguers. Right. And so I say that because I don't know that my experience at IMG was always representative of like, we're trying to make sure that every girls lacrosse player is like a D one scholarship. Like that wasn't the case. Right. A lot of times our job is helping them build the life skills, the well being, And then occasionally you get to that point of like actually trying to impact certain performance metrics. Mm -hmm. But truth be told, like not all of those athletes are there for that. Some of them show up and they're like, I don't even know if I'm going to play in college, which is fine. Like that's totally fine, but just the environment and the task itself for what our job is as coaches shifts. And so I say that because being in this environment, I do think that to be truly integrated, like at least from the mental performance side, I have to one, have a base knowledge of the sport. Like I have to understand what is the task calling for when I'm in the box, when I'm playing defense, when I'm pitching X, Y, Z. Right. Um, but I think that there's also this inherent piece of like being able to be in the performance environment consistently. Like we wear baseball pants. We're on the field with them all the time. Um, when they're in the cages, we're in the cages with them. When they're throwing pens, we're out there with them. Um, 
but I think the knowledge of the sport is so important because if I'm going to be out there, I better be able to speak the same language that they're speaking. I better be able to understand what they're actually trying to accomplish in their work out there because if I don't, I can't support it. Right. And so I think that that's something that's been really fascinating to me is that being a part at least of this organization, we are so well integrated that we're treated the same as our hitting coaches are. We have that much value, right? And that's not always the case for mental performance. Sometimes we're just that extra resource no, that hangs out <laughs> in the back corner. We're the meeting at the end of the day. And that hasn't been the case for us. You know, a lot of times we're not immediately going to like, hey, we need to manipulate the mechanics of a swing or his delivery. Like, it's like, okay, wait, where was his mindset for this first? Can we check the box of like where his focus was? How committed to what he was trying to do was he? Was there any doubts like, and we start to work from there because everything operates off that mindset, right? It's hard to pinpoint certain things if we don't understand the mindset that led to that, led to that in the first place. And so that's been super impactful for me to feel like I can do good work, but then to also feel like I'm a valued member of the team. Yes. Key things there being in the athlete's environment makes a huge difference in all those spaces that you talked about, whether it's practice, whether it's lift, whether it's the game, they want to see you out there. When you're not out there, you're going to know right away. Um, yep. Second thing, obviously, it clearly sounds like your organization's not in a silo. Everyone's on the same page. There's no ego over another person. You know, you guys all have a growth mindset and you want to, again, put the best possible product as a performance team together. So that allows the athlete to flourish where they need to go, which I hopefully, ideally, anyone who's listening to this is what you're trying to get towards because being in a silo is just going to cause more issues and more problems at the end of the day. Yeah, a thousand percent. And I think sometimes it's like being aware enough to check, like, are you in a silo? I think sometimes like we think because we have all these resources or these teams and because we end up meeting or having conversations about players, like that doesn't mean that we've actually manipulated the training system or environment to be able to be truly interdisciplinary. We're still trying to train these things away from the one place that they all actually have to be executed in. So, yeah. Stephanie, it was awesome having you on today. Could definitely probably bring you on for a second time because there's definitely <laughs> a lot more questions that I have uh, to ask you. Um, I think the viewers will get a lot of information from this. Um, again, anybody who wants to contact Stephanie, I'll put her contact information. I'll put my contact information in the bio below. Um, so if you guys have any questions, concerns, want to reach out to us just to get better and improve yourself or just have a chat like this, um, definitely going to be open to do that. And Stephanie, once again, really appreciate you coming on today and spending your Sunday with, with the viewers here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. I love getting into these topics. So much appreciated.